All right. Well, good to be with you guys this morning. I'm excited to preach the word. I'm here with a small crowd, just the production team, and Chris and Nicole, who did a wonderful job leading us in worship. Um, so today we're continuing our Ephesians series, and we're just going to look at one verse, Ephesians 5.18, actually just half of that verse. I'm going to read the verse just to kick us off. Um, it says this, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I'm going to look at this idea of being filled with the Spirit over the next couple weeks uh, during, really during Christmas, um, praying that it would be a Spirit-filled Christmas, overflowing with God's love and joy and peace. Spirit. But today I thought, you know, let's just take some time and uh, unpack just the first part of this, this verse, do not get drunk in kind of zoom out and look at what the whole scriptures have to say. And I want to share today not only uh, the word of God, but I will be opening up a little bit of my own life and just, you know, kind of sharing some of the present crises of conscience that I have in this particular area. I'll explain that in a few minutes. But the pandemic isolation has allowed, I think, for all of us, uh, maybe some of you are more busy than others, but uh, I think for a lot of us, it's been giving us more time to examine things, more time to spend with the Lord in prayer. Uh, for me, it's been a season of rethinking everything I do. In recent weeks, I've been asking questions like, like these. Is drinking okay? Is it not only permitted, but blessed by God? Uh, what does the Bible really teach about the use of alcohol? Does God intend Christians to enjoy the effects of alcohol in, in a moderate way, of course? What is moderate? How much is too much? Is it possible to feel the effects of alcohol and be being filled with the Spirit at the same time? Or are these things opposing fountains. So I, do, I just want to say this up front. I don't think that the scriptures are totally, perfectly clear as to whether drinking is wrong. Um, you know, we don't find in the Ten Commandments, for example, thou shalt not drink any fermented beverage. It's more complicated. We are left to search out what is right, and we have to grapple with verses that seem to be saying very different things and kind of put it all together, put the puzzle together. And that's why there are Christians on all sides of this matter. It's what we call a secondary issue. It's not something we should split over, but Christians have different views. I'm sure at Renaissance Church, some drink and some don't. Uh, there may be some who attend the church that get drunk occasionally, uh, maybe feel bad afterward about it, hopefully, and some who even have a strong dependence on alcohol. 
I hope this teaching will touch all of us in some way. It's important that we realize that because it's not perfectly clear what the Bible is saying on this matter, that we give each other space to have different convictions. In fact, I think it's healthy that we uh, dialogue with one another heartily about this. It's good to challenge each other. That's what I'm going to be doing today. It's challenging you. Um, that's what I hope to do, really, is just ask a lot of questions today. I love to ask questions. I love to think about things. But my aim today is not to give you a necessarily a, you know, here's how you should think, but I just want to provoke you to think and to talk with each other more about this idea of how we should relate to alcohol. Again, we have some varying views in our community. I just want to encourage us not to argue dogmatically, but dialogue peacefully. Let's be humble, and let's understand that the matter can be very complicated to get perfect clarity on. Well, I want to start by just sharing a little bit of my own of my own uh, relationship with alcohol up to this present moment. I was um, saved in 1989, and at the time I was 21, and I was heavily drinking and using drugs. Um, I probably started drinking in junior high and, um, you know, occasionally in the neighborhood. But the frequency and the amount grew each year. And really, I'm fortunate to be alive because there were times that I drank so much and got so sick, I could have easily died, as many, many young people, young adults die every year. But after my conversion to Christ, I didn't touch any alcohol for at least 20 years, maybe closer to 25 years. About seven years ago, uh, not too long after Wren Church pulled out of, away from the Assemblies of God, we were affiliated with that denomination, but it's another story, but decided that we shouldn't do that. But they have strict rules for their credentialed ministers that you can't drink alcohol. So anyways... It was always kind of a joke, and you know. But once I was non-denominational, not credentialed with AG, I was kind of free, you know, to to drink. Um, so I began to have a beer uh, after dinner, on occasion. You know, only one, uh, one and done, as they say, was was my rule, and has been my rule. Every once in a while, I'd have two, but I, I would space them out. Um, with at least four hours in between. And I, I always uh, just had a thing with my wife, being accountable to her, always telling her if I was to have a second one. So it was, it was very controlled uh, in the last, whatever it's been, five, seven years. I didn't give this decision to, dr to start drinking a whole lot of thought, to be honest, um, because I knew so many good Christians who drank. I mean, it just seemed like everyone's drinking now. It's like the old Christians and the old stodgy, you know, from the previous generations, they were against everything. And now this is like the new school uh, Christians and, you know, everyone drinks. And I heard all the common arguments for drinking being okay. Like, you know, Jesus drank wine 
with the sinners and Jesus turned water into wine and, 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 and many other verses. I'm going to give you just a, a few of the, the verses I've heard that, you know, kind of give support to, to drinking. And I've looked at these verses really hard this week. Uh, Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Hmm. Or, or Paul's words to Timothy, don't only drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. I think that was for medicinal purposes. Or how about this confusing verse in Deuteronomy 14? Spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Strange that God is saying, spend money on whatever your appetite craves. How about this one in Ecclesiastes 9, 7? Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Or this last one, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Your liquor cabinet will be overflowing. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. There's a few others, but there's really not that much in Scripture that uh, gives us a strong support. But in addition, the majority of uh, what I call new breed church planters drink. Um, this has just been the norm in recent years, maybe the last 10, 15 years. Um, usually craft beer. Uh, that's, that's just the cool thing that the new breed pastors do. Drinking has become the norm for the young modern American pastor. And so, again, I just didn't really think much of it. I think over time, though, as I practiced this habit, especially after being sober for, uh, or dry, I should say, for over 20 years, um, I, I just had moments of questioning do I need to do this? Is this really okay? Is this a good use of money? By drinking, am I incurring, encouraging others to drink who may not be as self-controlled as I am? Am I self-controlled enough? Will I always be self-controlled enough? Occasionally, I would have an IPA beer, my favorite, that would really kind of hit me two-thirds in. And I think to myself, should I be feeling this feeling? Can I be in the spirit and enjoying the mild effects of beer? And do I want to be seen as a pastor in the, in the community uh, drinking in a pub or coming out of a liquor store with a 12-pack of IPA beer when the Bible says avoid even the appearance of evil? So, so these questions and many other questions just in my mind uh, kind of troubled me on occasion. And again, during the pandemic, life slowed down so much that I started looking at every aspect of my life more closely. Um, I did some light 
fasting, the 40 days leading up to Thanksgiving, uh, and, and put aside beer and movies, uh, which I just like to do that on occasion anyways, like during Lent, for example, or just other special times of the year, um, just kind of, you know, cl- clear those things aside. And so I had a beer, a red stripe, I think 4.7% alcohol, very low on Thanksgiving Day, but then froze. I suddenly found myself in a crisis of conscience and very troubled about the whole matter. Then I started, just happened to be on this particular verse of scripture, then I started doing research for this message and realized it was the first time I'd ever preached a full message on alcohol. I think I've mentioned it here or there in sermons, but I don't think I've ever preached a full message on it. So I had to go deep with it, looking at the full range of scripture about alcohol and really paying attention to context and trying to understand what these um, verses mean. And I honestly found a lot more verses that stare us away from drinking than would support drinking. Here are just a few of the kind of warnings against drinking. Uh, This is Proverbs 20. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 21. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Proverbs 23, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkards or the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Or this one, Proverbs 23, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of the eyes. These are the consequences of drinking. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. It bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Or about this one from Isaiah 5, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Isaiah 5.22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. You think about the games that uh, young people, college students especially, play at parties, just, you know, who can drink the most and remain standing. How many times that's been portrayed in different movies or TV shows? Habakkuk 2.15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. How about this verse from Leviticus 10 to Aaron? Drink no wine or strong drink, you and your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, the place where they would pray, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Proverbs 31, it's not for kings, O Lemuel. Kings, you could really apply to any kind of position of leadership, I think. Um, It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine 
or for rulers to desire dr- strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Um, Isaiah 28, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. This is talking about pastors and prophets and just, you know, kind of spiritual leaders. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. A couple more. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And we usually focus on that part of it, food, you know, and we have a Daniel fast. But it also says, or with the wine that the king drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Interesting. What what kind of wine did the king drink that Daniel felt would defile himself by drinking it? the question. John Baptist, he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, or he will be filled, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I could give many more, but these are just a few of the ones that um, struck me this week. Also, in my just kind of research this week, and I started working on this actually probably two or three weeks ago, but especially this, this week, um, I started to read the strong arguments for abstinence by these pastors that I respect. Uh, John Piper, for example. John MacArthur, who I think is just an incredible expositor of the word. Um, Charles Spurgeon, going back to the 1800s. What did he have to say? He's, they say he's the greatest preacher who ever lived. Um, I love his spirit of truth in the way he preaches. Uh, David Wilkerson, my old pastor in New York City when we were new Christians, um, wrote a book actually called Sipping Saints. And so I thought, you know, pulled, kind of blew the dust off of it uh, uh, from my shelf and said, maybe I'll give this a read uh, through again. And, and many others, I just wanted to just hear them out again and uh, just, but it all put me in a place of just being uh, frozen and just uncertain if I, I should drink at all. So I'm, again, I'm delivering this talk today to, to make us think. I, I don't want to tell anyone what to do uh, because I think this is a matter of conscience. I, I'm still thinking it through. Like I said, I'm frozen. I haven't fully decided what I'm going to do. I'm just kind of just frozen in place and, and, and I got to pray it through and think it through some more. But today I want to give you some thoughts and questions to consider. I'm at a point in my walk, and I think the pandemic has had this effect on me of just re-examining everything I do. I hope you will join me in this to question what could be holding us back. I just, as I said a few weeks ago in talking about just content that we expose our eyes to or ears or things that we read. I, I, you know, I just don't want to be taking a chance with anything that could pollute my heart or diminish the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I just, I want to know God more than anything in the world. And I just don't want to do anything that might be grieving God. And if I'm not sure, then I'm just 
I'm putting it aside uh, until I can get sure. I just, I don't want to take chances with my, with my heart. And I just don't think it hurts to be strict about things as long as we don't turn our strictness into a rule for everyone and con- condemn everyone around us. Um, that wouldn't be good. But it's okay to be strict with ourselves. So here's what I've been learning, and I'm going to rip through this really fast because I have a lot of content to cover, and I hope you uh, are in a mode to really absorb information. Here's what I've been learning. When we think of wine today, we think of it as the stuff you get at the package store, like red and white wine, that has about 12% average alcohol content. The grape juice you get at the market is not called wine, right? It's called juice. Uh, non-alcoholic wine, we also don't call wine. We call it non-alcoholic wine. But it must be understood that wine was essentially the main beverage for Jews uh, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. That's what, all they had. Um, there were different potencies of wine. New wine, that the scripture talks about, was essentially fresh-squeezed grape juice right out of the wine press and it was absolutely delicious tasting. Or it was in the very early stages of fermentation and very low in alcohol content. Wine was also mixed with part water. Sometimes two-thirds water, sometimes half water. Sometimes even there's um, accounts of 20 parts water. This would make it, of course, last longer in the hot climate that they lived in and was important to do for Families who were poor. We know grapes don't grow with alcohol in them, of course, but the process of decay called fermentation is what gives it its intoxicating quality. But even fermented wine could be boiled to eliminate the alcohol content. All this needs to be factored in when we're thinking about this. Here's what one researcher of Hebrew and Greek words said. When the Bible refers to wine... It does not necessarily refer to the same thing every time. There are at least 18 different words that have all been translated as wine somewhere in the Bible. It is interesting to note that in the New Testament, which was composed in Greek, all occurrences of wine are primarily translated from the generic term oinos, which is used to refer to all types of wine except shikar, which is defined as what satiates or intoxicates and is rendered instead in Greek as sakara, which is translated as strong drink. And you see that term in the Bible. The wine that we know today most certainly existed in Christ's time, but not all references to wine made in the Bible are the same kind of drink. Some were most certainly just juice. End quote. I think I read somewhere this week, too, that there were 16 different uses of the grape, of, you know, 16 different uses of it, and alcoholic wine was the least important. This is me thinking now, you know, in the sweltering heat, when the little Jewish Boys and girls came in from playing parched with thirst. They probably didn't down a liter of red wine with alcohol content of like 10%. And I remember as a kid 
in, in hot, humid New England weather, just like bursting in, into the kitchen. And my mom had this, it was like a two liter Tupperware pitcher. And usually it had like delicious lemonade in it. And I would just, I don't think I was supposed to do this, but I would take the cover off and just drink the whole thing. I mean, pretty much drink the whole thing, probably two thirds of it, well over a liter. Cause you're just, you can drink as a kid. You've, you've sweat out so much fluid. Since the Jewish children drank so much, I'm sure they weren't any different in the heat. They probably drank a watered-down new wine or boiled wine or something very, very low in alcohol content, just enough to purify the water. I don't have time to go into all the Hebrew and Greek words or give you quotes about variants in wines from history, but I'll just say there's a lot out there, both from Jewish historians and non-Jewish, of course, Christian theologians, you know, differ about all these things. Like many things um, Christians debate about, you'll find arguments on both sides. I want to encourage you to listen to both sides and especially dig into Scripture prayerfully. Now, even people not familiar with the Bible tend to know that Jesus turned water into wine. Oh, man, you know, college students who party, they love that story. I mean, this is just a popular story. This is like the coolest is the cool Jesus. Um, this is usually what Christians refer to when they celebrate their drinking more than anything. I, I know I've, I've, used, I've used that. But I really thought a lot about this this week and kind of dug into the story deeper. I'm going to not to get too deep into it, but just give you a few thoughts. Here's a piece of the story, okay? This is from John chapter 2. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, it doesn't say they got drunk, but when they've drank, because the weddings would go on for days, actually, then they bring out, you know, kind of the worst wine toward the end, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Well, it's hard to imagine that at a wedding when the wine ran out, now we don't even know if the wine that ran out was alcoholic wine or how, what percentage of alcohol it had in it. Could have been very low. It could have been a very, very righteous family. Very, we don't know. I mean, there's kids at the wedding. They had kids back then. You didn't have like one kid or two kids. You had like eight kids. I mean, that's just what you did. Okay, so there were kids everywhere at this. What were they drinking? The same. But it's hard to imagine that at a wedding where the wine ran out, which implies people had already drank considerably, that Jesus would have provided wine with high alcohol content. And we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's like being at a wedding, okay? And just as the dancing begins, there's an announcement from the DJ. The last bottle of wine has been consumed. And, and the crowd is like, oh, no. 
That's terrible. But the pastor grabs the microphone. You know, the one who did the wedding ceremony earlier in the afternoon and says, fear not, everyone. The liquor store is right around the corner. I'll be back with 180 gallons of wine. This act of generosity would surely be a lush encouragement from the pastor for everyone to drink up. It would be weird. More likely, Jesus provided a very delicious new wine, unfermented, undiluted wine to the guests that was bursting with flavor. The way it would be if you picked the finest grapes in the land and pressed them into fresh juice, undiluted. Or it was new wine just beginning to ferment and had extremely low alcohol content, like Odules that I used to drink before I drank that you can buy at Stop and Shop. I don't even know what the alcohol content is, like 0.0 or something. It's so low. You'd have to drink like 50 of them uh, to, you know, to get buzzed. One writer pointed out, and I thought this was kind of interesting, that since Jesus is God and knows everything, he knows that even a small amount of alcohol can harm the baby in the womb. Would Jesus provide what may have been 120 to 180 gallons of alcoholic wine with probably many pregnant women? from The whole village would come out to weddings. It wasn't just like a little private wedding with 40 people. Like everyone came to the wedding. And like I said, people had babies. So there were probably many pregnant women at the wedding. So that kind of doesn't make sense either. Um, and how about people present who had issues with alcohol? Jesus knew everything. Would Jesus tempt them with not only alcoholic wine, but like delicious alcoholic wine? that appears as a miracle and sanctioned by God? Doesn't Scripture say God tempts no one? And Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into, into temptation? All this doesn't make sense. It just doesn't add up. Well, another common argument in support of drinking is that Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors to the point that he was called a wine-bibber. A wine-bibber is someone who habitually drinks or drinks too much. When you think about what the Scripture says about alcohol, I read many of the verses before, things like, uh, you know, wine is a mocker, uh, don't even look at it, uh, woe to him who gives his neighbor drink. Would Jesus be spending time with drunkards enslaved to alcohol and drinking what they are drinking? I mean, how would that be helping those who are drunkards? How would that be helping anyone? Isn't it more probable that Jesus, remember the Bible says he was anointed with the oil of joy, chose the wine with little or no alcohol content in it? I mean, wouldn't it be confusing to people if he was drinking alcoholic wine and yet was filled to overflowing with the joy of the Holy Spirit? Jesus was accused of being a wine-bibber by the religious leaders who hated him. Maybe because they saw him with drunkards and he, of course, looked very happy because he was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
But remember, Jesus was sinless. He was certainly not a wine-bibber any more than he was accused of being demon-possessed or being a liar or being a blasphemer. He was accused of a lot of things. And do we really think Jesus drank alcohol when the children loved Jesus and came to Jesus, looked up to him? I mean, wouldn't they think, well, Jesus drinks, it must be okay. And kids, including teens and college-age kids, are often not developed in self-control at all. It takes years to develop self-control. And didn't Jesus say, better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea than make one of these little ones stumble? I mean, wouldn't he be contradicting his own teaching? If someone asked the Lord, what do the scriptures say about wine? Of course, he knew the Bible inside and out. I mean, would he share all of the verses warning of the dangers of wine with a glass of alcoholic wine in his hand. Just can't, it doesn't make sense. And then we could ask the question, what would Jesus do if he was here today in America when thousands die each year of alcohol-related deaths? It's a huge problem here. There are millions of alcoholics and many who are desperately struggling to be free. Knowing that so many people lack self-control, would he crack open a beer at a social gathering? Wouldn't openly drinking diminish his influence with the AA crowd? Well, okay, we say, maybe he would, you know, not drink in front of the AA people. Maybe he'd only drink alcohol at home, alone. Would he? Why? I mean, what if someone popped in? for a visit and found Jesus home alone drinking. I mean, that would be weird, no? I think what Ephesians 5.18 is saying is that we really don't need to go to alcohol when we have the Holy Spirit who gives us joy. I've seen through the years how some Christians drink. You know, it's one Two drinks, three drinks, not, not out of control, but, but, but tipsy, glossy, clumsy, giddy, a little silly. The word of God says, be sober, be alert. Our minds are not sharp under the influence of alcohol. It's just truth. Even one drink can affect your driving. And if around others, do we really think nobody knows the glow up on us is from the drink? It's so funny how people have that, you know, they're just a little lit and they just are acting like they're totally fine, but it's so obvious that they've been drinking too much. People know. And it, I think it hurts the credibility of our message um, that, that Jesus satisfies. The simple fact is we, we don't need alcohol. We, we, we don't need it to purify our water. Um, we don't need it to enhance our mood. We don't need to waste our money on it. We don't need it for medicinal purposes. We really just don't need it. And I question whether we can be getting buzzed and be in the spirit at the same time. I mean, can we be intoxicated with wine and intoxicated by the spirit at the same time? But let me get a little deeper here and get more real. Why do people drink? 
Come on. Non-Christians, Christians, you know. It's for the effects on the mind and body. It's to get that calm, loose, less inhibited, just kind of good feeling. As Christians, of course, we're more careful answering these questions. We say, well, I do it to bond with my Christian friends so that I can reach them for the gospel. Or, I, you know, I do it to relax. I enjoy the taste. And it's true, many alcoholic beverages taste really good. They're designed to entice young people who love sugar. I mean, I remember, I think one of the things I first started drinking was peach schnapps. I mean, it was like liquid candy. Very sweet. But here's what I've come to realize by experience. Is that even one beer or one glass of wine does something. And I think we should be honest about that. It alters us slightly. We're not out of control, but we're mildly affected. And if we're honest, we would admit that part of the reason we drink is to get that feeling. And is that not a little dangerous, especially when two drinks will double that feeling and three will triple that nice feeling? How many Christians do you know? I know many who started drinking just one drink, but gradually increased more and more until it became a massive problem. We are taught in Christian circles that it's okay to drink in moderation, right? That's the, in fact, I read several sermons this week <laughs> that concluded with that. You know, it's okay as long as you drink in moderation. But what does that mean? It's just so vague. I mean, that could mean anything. What, moderation? I've seen people drink three, four, five drinks, and they're able to control their behavior perfectly carry on conversations, do their job at work. I mean, I used to work with guys that drank whiskey on the job. They were fine. They were fine. I mean, is that okay as long as you, you know, you, you, you can control yourself? Uh, one pastor said, as long as you aren't acting like a fool. That's not helpful. Because some of us in the past have worked jobs drinking all day long or on other drugs. I was on acid doing room service at a hotel. I mean, I, I could control myself. Nobody knew that because if you, you're a user, you learn how to behave, how to act normal. So what is moderation? It's just such a vague thing. And I'm genuinely just asking this question. Does God intend for his people to get that feeling? Some would emphatically say, yes, it's one of the many pleasures God has provided for us to enjoy. I'm just in a place that I'm just not sure if that's true. Now I want to end because, uh, I don't expect that those of you 
who drink will immediately, you know, after the service today, dump your wine and beer down the sink. Uh, Maybe some will. That would be awesome. But I want to give some closing pastoral wisdom to those who don't feel ready to stop drinking. And I'm going to fly through these. There's 10 of them. Number one, if you've had issues with alcohol in the past, it's wise to abstain. If we abused alcohol in the past, we are much more likely to fall into addiction than someone who has never abused it. We should at least be aware of that and be accountable to someone. Number two, don't drink around people who used to have a drinking problem and are striving to stay sober. Romans 14 says it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Number three, have a clear boundary, like one and done, as they say. If you don't establish that beforehand, then when will you know when to stop? It's unwise to decide when to stop when you're already feeling the effects of alcohol. That can be applied to some other things too. Number four, don't drink every day as a habit. Maybe special occasions, but I think drinking every day is unnecessary. And drink slowly. Nurse it over hours if you're going to have a drink. If you're thirsty, don't drink an alcoholic beverage. Drink water. Number five, pay attention to the alcohol content and the size of the serving. If drinking beer, you can find good tasting beers. Like I mentioned, I like Red Stripe 4.7, I think it is, in alcohol content. But even some of the IPAs tend to be a little heavier, um, hoppy. Uh, You you can find some that are, I think, between like 5.5 and 7%. Stick with 12-ounce beer or less if the restaurant has it or whatever you are. Never 16 ounce or 22 ounce, even if it's only a dollar more. Um, Just, you know, be, it's not necessary. Don't need a 22 ounce beer. Number six, fast from drinking during certain seasons, like Lent or like we're going to do at the beginning of the year, starting January 1st, the 100 days of pursuit. (laughs) That'd be a perfect time to just set aside alcohol. My wife and I have always done that in the last, like, whatever, five years during Lent. It's very good and healthy to do that. Fasting reveals to us how much we are attached to a thing. Getting away from it helps us to see it clearly. We also give ourselves an opportunity to see if the thing is hindering us spiritually. If we don't fast for like a day, I'm, you know, like 40 days is a good idea. This applies not only to drinking, but social media, TV, sports, radio, movies, video gaming, and sugar, to name a few. All right, number seven. Know that one glass of wine or a beer has an effect, and be sure you're okay with that. Don't drive a car even after one drink. Just don't do it. If you're driving, don't drink at all. Even the slight diminishing of alertness could cause an accident and kill someone. I read a quote this week that said teen drivers are 17 times more likely to die in a crash when they have a blood alcohol concentration of 
8%, which is the legal limit, than when they have not been drinking. Number eight, know that drinking in public could potentially diminish your influence with certain unbelievers. Like I said, the AA crowd, for example. Be sure you're okay with that. Nine, before you settle that it's okay to drink, be sure you do an in-depth study on the topic. Honestly, I'm just confessing. I didn't. When I started drinking five to seven years ago, I really just, everyone was doing it, seemed okay, good Christians, all my pastor friends, okay, let's do it, this is fine. And I really didn't do my homework as, as I should have at the time, but I'm just encouraging you to do your homework. In other words, don't just do what others are doing. Search it out. Search out content that supports drinking and is against drinking. Read through the strongest arguments you can find for abstinence with an open heart. And lastly, number 10, understand the dangers of alcohol and realize how susceptible we are, weak as humans, to being deceived in matters of pleasure. It's easy to think if God is pleased when I get a relaxed feeling from one beer or glass of wine, then maybe he would be pleased and okay with two and maybe two and a half. Or it just, it's a slippery slope. And Proverbs says, take firm paths for your feet. And it also says in the scriptures, if you think you stand firm, take heed lest you fall. We need to be humble. We shouldn't be arrogant and think, oh, I can handle it. I can do anything. I, I would never be one of those people who, you know, starts just drinking and then just drink, ends up drinking too much at some point in his life. Listen, nobody, no Christian at least, starts drinking with the intention that they're going to end up being an alcoholic but it's happened many, many, many times. Well, this has been a lot of content. I hope you guys um, will just take it all to heart. Thanks for considering this. And again, I just want to just say, please don't argue about this with each other. Um, dialogue about it peacefully. You can dialogue with me about it. I'm happy to talk about it. If you have a problem with alcohol, please reach out for help. There's freedom in Christ, and Christ uh, satisfies the deepest place in our soul. So don't, don't live in bondage to anything. You know, reach out for help and let the body of Christ help you. Love you guys. Thanks for listening this morning. I hope this uh, stirs up your lunchtime conversation today. Love you.